The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Our guest today, Susan Cross, lives in New Mexico, and she describes herself as a well-wisher to ravens, bears, bumblebees, rattlesnakes, and coyotes. She tells us that she's a burial shroud maker, rawhide hand drum and rattle builder, a ceremony writer, a gardener, an old mother, a tour driver, a grief-stricken naturalist drowning her sorrows with single malt scotch, and a weary but wonder-filled pilgrim who has written a number of essays that you can find on the Spirituality and Health website, spiritualityhealth.com. She's also the author of a wonderful new book called A Fleeting Presence, Field Notes from a Crone. And that's what we're going to be talking about. So Susan Cross, welcome to Essential Conversations. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm glad to be here. I'm very happy to talk to you. This this should be really interesting because the, the book was very interesting. And yet I'm going to start out with something so predictable. Um, but I can't find a reason not to be. So let's start with your understanding of the crone as the master uh, of the life-death life cycle. I want to know what you mean by crone. I want to know what you mean by life-death life cycle. Okay. Well, to me, the crone is a wise woman, a person who's lived a long life and has experiences to share with people. But the word crone uh, has been vilified for centuries, really. It used to be a tag of honor, just like the word hag. But through Christianity and uh, the squelching of paganism, that word has been tainted. <laughs> and I think when most people think of crone these days, they think of, uh, of the pejorative, you know, kind of a evil old woman, uh, like in, in uh, Sleeping Beauty with the poison apple. Right, right. The, the disnification of the feminine. <laughs> exactly. And the destruction of the crone. You, you also say that, oh, and I want to come back to the life, death, life thing in a second, but you also say that a crone is elementally neutral, yet caring. And I, I thought that really caught me, like elementally neutral, yet caring. So tell us a little bit about the crone as being elementary, 
it's even hard for me to say, elementally, <laughs> elementally neutral yet caring. Well, I think, again, with, you know, compassionate life experience, people develop that sense of really caring for others. And at the same time, you aren't there with your own agenda. So I guess that that's mostly what I'm thinking of there is that it's a an agendaless taking care of others and also of yourself. So yeah, you, that's also in the book. You write that that uh, I'm not quoting you, but you say the crone isn't contaminated with personal agendas. And I, I guess you, by personal agenda, you mean something small, almost selfish. Is that right? Yeah, and trying to influence people or manipulate people uh, or. Right. Yeah, drag your own belief systems into their world. Yeah, right. Impose impose your sense of what's supposed to be happening on the other person's experience, that that kind of thing. Exactly. But, but elementally, it sounded so deep, so profound that somehow, and I'm, you know, these are my words, not your words, but it sounded like to me that you're speaking of someone who has gone beyond her personal agenda into some, I mean, this, an, an elemental, I'm going to play on your notion of elementally neutral, an elemental agenda, maybe, maybe speaking for the planet or speaking for nature or seeing things from a, a more globalist or maybe even cosmic perspective and helping people find their place in that larger reality. Am I making too much of this. You're totally there. I mean, you know, the crone in many ways is, you know, older than old. And in my understanding and the way that I think of it is like, you know, she's almost the void, you know, that, that things manifest from and definitely very much a part of the elemental earth and the cycle of life. And that, in our world, we tend to not want to complete the circle. <laughs> it seems to me that many Americans get stuck in that adolescent part and don't want to mature. And the crone is definitely about maturity and about the gravitas of completing that circle. That you know, you have death on your on your shoulder. Right. It's, it's interesting because we talk about life cycle. But the way you're saying it is we really don't want to complete the circle because, it's, I mean, we, we talk about, okay, there's birth and death. That's not a cycle. That's a straight line that ends. But a life cycle, the way you have it, going from, you know, it's life, death, life. So I'm curious as to how you understand is the first life and the last life in the life, death, life equation the same or, or how, do, how are they related? My understanding there comes from the Celtic world and the the crone, you know, is in charge of the cauldron of transformation. And so everything that dies goes into the cauldron and is transformed and transmuted and comes out again in another form. So, no, I don't think that it's necessarily the same life at all, but I think that it's life. (laughs) And yeah. I think we come back many, many times. In, in some essential way? In, in, I mean, I, I would say that, I, I would agree with that, but I would use the analogy of the ocean and the wave, so that the ocean continually waves, 
but no wave ever repeats. Is that what you have in mind? Or do you actually think Susan's been here before and Susan will come back? No, I, more what you're describing. Okay, good. Then you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like being and right. <laughs> and, and since I get to define what's right, then, you know, that's, it's good for me also. Um, th- there's another aspect of the crone that seems to be bigger than its connection to, to women. Like you, you, you talk about, despite the fact that a crone is, is like the old grandmother in some kind of archetypal way, I'm going to quote you from the book. You write, this slim book is for anyone who is growing older each day, for those who have ancestors, for those who will die, for people who have had their life explode in surprising ways, and for those who seek. Now, that's not women exclu- uh, exclusively, right? I mean, I too have ancestors. I'm going to die. My life has exploded in surprising ways, and and I am addicted to seeking. So... <laughs> I, so really, and, and having read the book, I can attest to this, that the book speaks to men also. But I'm wondering, from your perspective, if it speaks to women and men differently, or if women and men benefit from the wisdom in the book in, in a different way? That's a really good question. I think that the crone is like a, a sacred femininity. And certainly, I think that... Um, all of us contain, you know, both the sacred masculine and the feminine. And so, yeah, I think that it's very definitely uh, a presence in men. As far as is what, you know, I think it's more individual than gendered. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) I think that people would get benefit from uh, the wisdom of the crone in many different ways and that it's more aligned with, uh, your individual path than it is with what your gender is. Yeah. Now, now in my life, because I think you could you could look at this in a number of ways. And one is sort of like the inner crone, getting in touch with your archetypal crone or something. But I've had, well, I can think of two right off the top of my head, crones in my life. Now, both of them uh, were, I thought, ancient women. <laughs> but that's because I was so young. Now I realize that they were my age, the age, you know, they're in their 70s. But when I was in, in my teens and, and early 20s, I thought these women were really old. But I've had two, I, I would say, crones in my life uh, who were deeply, in very different ways, deeply, deeply spiritual women without a personal agenda or or even... I don't know how you'd put it, but they didn't have a religious agenda, but they, they, they had a, a deep spiritual wisdom about them. But they weren't like promoting a specific religion at, at all. One was a professor of world religions uh, and the other was a, a professor of, of, uh, of history. Um, but they were both wise. I, I'm going to say they were both wise in the same way, but expressed it in uniquely different ways. So my, my question is, well, first of all, have you known Crohn's in that in the body kind of kind of way? And then how might they have a common wisdom and then express it in it without a personal agenda, still expressing it through unique personalities? Yeah, I've known some some Crohn's. I feel like I have a circle of Crohn's right now. <laughs> um, but, but as I was 
you know, kind of growing and and uh, moving through life, there have been a couple of uh, women who were definitely older. And, you know, the thing that that I think about that I learned from them was like, you know, I love that sort of like, there's like this tolerance and joy that emanates from from people who are in that kind of a space and they um they they're inspiring often and um comforting um so yeah i think that for me though i think that that tolerance and joy is are the two uh pieces that stood out the most for me for the women who who really uh influenced me as I was a young woman coming up. But they were not in any way, um, this is a question, I'm making it sound like a statement. As I understand, they weren't in any way mirror images or copies of one. Each one was unique with a dynamic personality of her own, right? Very and much yet so. this, this greater pool of wisdom out of which they come. I mean, that that's how it seemed to me in the book. And that that's how I've experienced it to the limited extent that I have. And that, that's what you're saying, though, right? Correct. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, I, there's no way to know this. I mean, I'm hoping those who are listening to the podcast will take a moment either right now while we're talking or, or afterward. And just to think about who are these people in your life? I don't know. I'm wondering... And you can't answer this. It's just a rhetorical question. I'm wondering if in our society, it's more difficult because we're, we don't mix ages that way. I guess I will make that a question. What do you think? <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that that's uh, really true. And, you know, if you, if you ever listen to Stephen Jenkinson talk about elderhood, I mean, that's a whole other three-hour conversation I think one of the things that he says that I really resonate with is the idea that if there's this reciprocity that happens between the generations and young people are longing for elders and elders need young people and a desire to help them form. And I think that, yeah, we're very separate in this culture, very age, age uh, segregated. And it does definitely make it harder. And it also even like, like right now I have a, a group of women who feel like they're alone in their cronehood where they are. And so, so geographically, we're from all over the United States, but we're trying to support each other because people feel alone in their uh, identity as a crone. Yeah, that makes that I would imagine that sort of makes doing the crone work. And and maybe even blossoming fully as a crone, much more difficult. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, everybody wants in America wants to, uh, you know, stay 45 forever. Yeah, and we're always into the new and improved. And exactly. the old and dying is just not on our agenda. But I, I want to switch gears a second because you, you write very powerfully it seems to me, about something that I want to get into with you. I'm going to quote you back to yourself. This is very on, early on in the book. It's actually page three. You, you say that you grew up without deliberate transference of heritage, no cultural underpinnings, no creaky relatives leaning on a cane and telling me legends from the home country. In fact, there was a deliberate severance 
a great forgetting. And I want, if you can elaborate on that a little bit, uh, talk about the heritage that was not transferred uh, and, and, you know, what, what the impact of that is on you now. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's a big thing. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, the, again, it's a particularly North American phenomenon, I think, because so many people did leave European nations under duress. My, my people were Scottish and Irish and from Cornwall, all places where uh, the languages were squelched and there was deliberate genocide, really. So when people immigrated to America, their memories often were quite unpleasant. And not only, you know, were, were was there the political unpleasantness, but there's also, you know, this desire to move away from a struggling life. So as as people, I'm going to put, you know, air quotes around bettered their lives, they often, you know, started to really resent the idea of labor. And so I think that there's a lot of strands there of not wanting to remember those awful times and starting fresh in a place where you have no history, really. But I also think that it's a, a real deep longing in every human being to be connected to their heritage and their culture and their people and their landscape. And so I think there's a real ache in our world today for that kind of continuity and knowledge and um, wholeness. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Yeah, you know, when I read that, I was thinking about, I mean, my, myself, I'm Jewish. I come from a tribal people that's in some ways obsessed with the transference of heritage. Yet I have a, a similar sense of what you call a great forgetting. You know, after the Holocaust with the, the destruction of six million Jews, the survivors were interested in maintaining the heritage, trans, you know, transmitting the heritage. But the heritage that they transmitted, at least in my estimation, was very much of the surface. And there was a great forgetting of the depth. Now, this is not universally true, but this is my, my experience. I, I think this is fair to say that what I was taught was the ritual, you know, how to do the rituals, how to dress uh, in, the, in the proper Jewish ritual dress, how to do the proper ritual things, the holidays and all of that, but with no spiritual depth to it. It was just form, but the forms were empty. And that wasn't, well, maybe it was in a sense deliberate, but it caused, and here's the question, for, for I think for Jews, it caused a great alienation from the heritage because it just seems like so meaningless. And you have to dig so deep to get the meaning back. And I'm just wondering, because you are engaged in this 
this is not your words, but almost a heritage reclamation in, in the crone work. Do you, do you feel there's something similar that, that what they didn't pass on was really without depth anyway, and you have to dig for that on your own? Well, for, for me personally, I think it was even, there was nothing. Hmm. I didn't know what countries people came from. It was never spoken of. And my mother, though, she, she used to say we were shanty Irish, which in her mind was poor, poor Irish. She probably transferred the most information about heritage in those funny ways. But yeah, it was like a total emptiness for me. I didn't even know my grandparents' names. So yeah, it was a big dig. And and I've been interested in diaspora. I, I live in the Southwest. I worked um, with a lot of archaeologists down here. And diaspora is a huge thing in the archaeological world. You know, it's like, what do people carry with them? And what transfers as people migrate and move? And and so, yeah, I, I think about diaspora all the time and how, what did my people bring with them? Um, and, and for me, mostly it was these funny little, you know, superstitions, actually. Yeah, right. Well, I think a lot of that is, is common. I mean, my, <clears throat> my grandmother who came from Russia she came with a lot of superstitious, evil eye focused, you know, behaviors that you could never do in America without really uh, finding yourself at the wrong end of people's horror. <laughs> but uh, so, so let me, let me switch gears a little bit. I know you have a copy of the book with you. And cause I want you to, a little bit later, I'm going to ask you to read a passage to close out the conversation. But it just dawned on me that there's something else I'd love to have you read if we can find it quickly. It's on page 46 and it starts, this is about your burial and what your plans are. <laughs> uh, I've been going through a lot of stuff about, about death and dying and, and with, with different members of my family, not COVID related, though we had that also with an, an aunt dying, but just planning out you know, our, our own end. And you write about it. What I'd like you to read is the part where it begins, and for heaven's sake, no burial. <laughs> Can you yes, find I've that? Yes, I've got it. And for heaven's sake, no burial. I'm far too claustrophobic for that. No, my hope is for a hot, hot fire. Preferably a real one, a cord of juniper and pinion pine to act as a catalyst. To send me, the visible part, now I've oriented to where I am, off on a final phase change. To transition, at least for now, to vapor and ash. If my daughter or friends want to, I invite them to sift through the ash for the bone bits and the melted gold teeth blobs to use those intimate and enduring pieces for rattle sounders or to store in a pretty box for setting on the ancestor altar at Samhain next to the whiskey or to take me along in a pocket on special occasions. I'll do my best to be there when needed. The rest, the fine ash, I'd like to dust the places I love, to rest my tired old molecules on what sustained me during one life, one mysterious round. That is just... It really moved me when I read it myself and way more so when I hear it in, in your own voice. There is so much in this to unpack and we don't have enough time <laughs> to do that. But I just want to ask you about a couple of things. 
the notion that your your daughter or friends would take bone bits or you know melted gold teeth and do something uh, practical with them. I mean, you, you see them as intimate parts of you, and then they're going to carry them with you or use them ornamentally or use them in a, in a rattle sounder. Um, what, and, and okay, wait, I'm going to answer my own <laughs> question. I was going to say, what do they get out of this? But then it seems to me that you, you, you say you're going to do your best to be there when needed. I have this fantasy, right? It's complete fantasy as if I were your daughter. That's how I read it when, that's how I experienced it when I read it. That, yeah, I'm going to take mom's, bone and teeth, make a rattle sounder. And then when I'm having, when I have a question or I have a, which, what do I do? Which path do I take? I'm going to use the rattle and in the sound, it's mom speaking to me in this new way. And I'm just going to rattle to get an answer. You know, what, mom, what do you think? (laughs) Is that, is that, does that speak to you? Is that what you had in mind or is that just me going? No, I think that that's exactly what I had in mind. (laughs) How did your daughter respond to that? She goes, oh, mom. (laughs) No, she's pretty, um, she's pretty aligned with me. So she's on for all of it. (laughs) (laughs) I know I told her, you know, get the dry ice, baby, because you have to sit with my body for three days. So. And she's ready. Yeah, that's, I'm glad to hear that because it seems like such a, I mean, the sitting with the body, that's also a Jewish tradition, though we bury within 24 hours. So you don't need the dry ice. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of traditions that, that every people have in common. But the idea of speaking, and I'm just obsessed with this rattle idea, it just really hit me. Speaking through the rattle just seems so powerful. My mom has recently had a stroke and, and she was, she's not, I mean, she's dying. We're all dying. She's in her nineties, but she's not dying that quickly as far as we know. But she, when she was at her most stressed with this, physically stressed, not, not just emotionally, she was having these deep conversations with my father. My sister was, was present for this. And she was having these long talks with our dad. Uh, basically saying, okay, I'm coming, you know, so get ready. It wasn't a negative thing. It wasn't, she wasn't sad. She was ready and still is, I think, ready, even though she's not dying as quickly as we thought. But there's a, there's a gone there. There's a, she's just gone. That's it. She's not here. But what you're describing is something, I think, more, more powerful that, that you're, you still have a voice. Uh, if if your daughter does this, you still have a voice, which I thought was really something. In some um, Celtic places, when someone uh, dies, they hang a harp above the fireplace for like a week after the death. And they think that the, the voice of the dead person goes into the harp, wow. which almost makes me choke up just telling you that story. So why 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 does that happen? Because... Then that person, when every time the harp is played, that person's voice is there. So, okay. I mean, that, I, I'm just going to ask one more time because, I mean, that makes sense, but it doesn't make me choke <laughs> up. Why the tears? Why the, that response, you think? Well, I think it's because I'm really feeling like over the last maybe five years, I've, I've really developed a relationship with some of my 
distant ancestors and they are very much there and they advise me and we speak and every morning I light a candle and, and tell them, you know, that I'm looking for restoration and reciprocity and I'm living in gratitude for the gifts that they gave me, the talents and the strengths and, and, uh, and they're, they're there. And to me, that's a, a very comforting and powerful thing. And it feels the same as my daughter making a rattle with my bone bits in it. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I can see that completely. So let me let me ask you something else. I'm just cognizant of our time. So actually, let, let me let me go to this other thing I wanted you to read as a way of bringing this to a close because. Again, there was parts of this book that were, I don't know, they left me breathless for a moment and, and I needed to reread them and then to contemplate them for a bit. And because I'm lucky enough to have this podcast, I get to have you read them to me <laughs> and see where they go with, with that. But this, this last thing I want you to read is from the very end of the book. And I'm not going to ask you to unpack it. I, I want it to sort of linger with the listener. So... Uh, it, it's from the very end, um, the passage that starts, the light is fading. And you can just read that all the way through, and that will bring this conversation to all a right. close. The light is fading. It's still quiet. The cat has had his second supper. As I crab shimmy back up my loft ladder to crawl into my angular crevice for rest, I look lovingly at my companion cat. He curls up to sleep blissfully in the moment. I don't think he worries, except about first breakfast and second supper. I would like that kind of respite from the forethought of grief. I feel the breeze pick up and watch the thunderheads build, smell the juniper and dust. I hear a cricket start to sing, and I feel sadness and gratitude in equal measure. Okay, so I said we were going to let it hang there, but I can't. <laughs> it, it's so beautiful. And, and I found this last bit. I find sadness and gratitude in equal measure. Is that still true today? I think it's more true today as my countryside burns up and I live under a heat dome. And at the same time, my squash are producing fruit and my chickens lay eggs and I have beautiful hummingbirds and yeah, it's just like always there. Yeah. It's, it's what, what the Taoists call the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows of everyday living. And in my book surrendered, I coined the term sublime melancholy. And I mean, the word just came to me, so I used it, but it seemed to me that you you're expressing something very similar with this sadness and gratitude in equal measure that, and this is a question that, that I will end with this. It's my sense, reading your book, that the crone, to go full circle, that the crone feels the sadness of the world and yet also experiences the gratitude for being alive or, or the, yeah, the world's, the world's aliveness. And it, so it's not like one of these new age, oh, I saw, everything's wonderful, everything's great, there's, you know, I'm beyond all the negativity. It's this bigger heart that feels sadness and gratitude in equal measure 
in the same moment, in a sense, what I, what I call sublime melancholy. Is that how you see it as well? Very much so. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I can't even understand that sense of like the, I call it Pollyanna-ish, you know, everything's okay. Yeah. It's not okay. And yet there's joy. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Susan, you're right again because you agree with me. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so we're going to end on a positive note where we're both right. Our guest today, Susan Cross, is the author of A Fleeting Presence, Field Notes from a Crone. You can read her essays on uh, our website, spiritualityhealth.com, and you can certainly benefit from reading her amazingly wonderful book. Susan Cross, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at Spirit Health Mag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. The Spirituality and Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I am an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.